Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. This is Full Change with Tom Laidlaw. Okay, Tom, we got a very incredible show today. We have someone to tell an, an amazing story. And shockingly, it's somebody who didn't get rid of you as a player. So <laughs> maybe you should have. Wait, that's what... Today we have on former Kings owner, Bruce McNall. Oh, one of my favorite people on the planet. Bruce, great to see you again. Nice to see you, Tom. Uh, I really do mean it. You know, I know we spoke after you got out of prison. We'll talk, tell that whole story, but uh, but you were fantastic, not just to me, but all the players. Uh, you really wanted to play for you, and uh, I don't nobody was happy with what happened to you after, but uh, we'll discuss all that. So great to see you again. Nice to see you as well. So I got traded to the Kings in 1986-87 from the Rangers, and Bruce, you owned, what, 25% of the team at that time, right? At that time, yes. I was a minority owner. Jerry Buss, believe it or not, even though he owned the Lakers, always needed cash. Oh. So I used to funnel him small amounts, 10000 15000 in a pool paper sack or something and give it to him. And so in 1979-80, I bought a minority interest in the Mavericks. So I knew him from that, Dallas Maverick. And then, um, and then one day he comes to me and he says, hey, that money I owe you, which was at that, that time about $2 million, he said, I know you want to buy the Kings. You're a big fan. I said, yes. He said, how about we transfer that into the minority, minority interest by $4 million. We'll buy you 25%. So the basis is $16 million. Not the billion dollars that the teams are worth today. Wow. Right. So I said, okay, great. So I gave him another $2 million and ended up with the team I had to sell the Mavericks because the, the fact that he owned the, the Lakers was a little bit of a conflict. So anyway... I did that, and uh, so wow. So, so for people listening, the, the key to owning an NHL franchise is just to give somebody bags of money on a regular basis. Oh, that helps, especially if you don't ask what it's for. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's back up a little bit. Then, where were you born, and raised? Culver City area of California, but I ended up um, uh, moving to Arcadia, California, which is where the Santa Anita racetrack is, which is why I got involved with horse racing later on. Because I knew some of the kids and people in that area. So uh, that's where I was born and raised and ended up uh, going to high school for a very brief period of time because I was going to, I went to UCLA, uh, a special program that had to take classes at the college at that same time. So I went to UCLA, graduated there when I was quite young, and then went on to the doctoral program in ancient history, believe it or not. Just my real love, where I made all the money that by the team came from coins, ancient Roman coins and artifacts. 
and uh, so that's 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 how it started. And you know, um, uh, so you were so you were this uh, super whiz kid that didn't stay in high school very long. Went right to college when you were what, like seventeen years old, or yeah, eighteen. But, exactly. Yeah, I graduated by the time I was twenty or so. So, but I had a company going, and my little business going, and it was going pretty well. And uh, so my my dream of being a college professor went by the wayside when I was making as much a week in selling my artifacts and coins as they would pay in a year. So I said, oh. maybe I should do this. Yeah, good call. All right. So so now things are going well in that business. Did you always dream of owning an NHL hockey team? Not, not realistically until maybe you know the the very early eighties. You know, because I you know when I started when I knew Jerry Buss, I started bugging him all the time. Hey, you want to sell the Kings? No, no, no. You know. And uh, I said, and, and so the dream came true in '85, really, or '86. Why buy in minority interests? That was great. Well, that, that's interesting, Bruce, because people that you grew up a Kings fan in the, in the '70s, because people all only think of the Kings as Gretzky and being this, this successful franchise, but the Kings were in bad shape for a long time. Well, the nice thing about going to a Kings game when I was going was that you could buy the seats from a scalper for like three dollars and sit on the ice seats. You know, yeah, nobody was there. It was great. Right. It, it, so I really got to. And, you know, love the game and all the guys at that time, you know, that were playing from Marcel Dion, as you know, and a guy named Tom, Tom Laidlaw you know, <laughs> with, uh, you know, uh, uh, the big star. I mean, uh, you know, uh, was Tom and then you had a few other guys getting around, Bernie Nichols, a few other guys. I remember I got traded there. That was a great group of guys. You know, Larry Playfair was there, Steve Duchesne, yeah. Luke Robitaille. So when you get traded from, from icon Marcel Dion, when do you first meet the owner? When does that happen? I don't think I, I met Bruce right away. It wasn't until I think when you took over like the majority ownership of the team, then you were right. around the team all the time. Right. And Bruce was right. a fantastic one. We, uh, we'll tell some more stories. Well, okay, we'll tell the one, because uh, Tom kind of questioned this. Remember when you used to fly some of us back in a private jet? Like if we were playing on the road and then we were playing home the next night, some of us would fly back in the jet. Yeah. Did, did that ruffle any, I can't remember, did it ruffle anybody else's feathers that was not on the flight? No, because I would ask, you know, or I, uh, I would check with the, you know, at that time, Dave Taylor or whatever the captain was, hey, uh, who, what guys need the rest? You know, at that time, I had a smaller jet. I had a jet star, which said, said about six people or so, and so didn't have a the big jet at the time. So I only take a handful of players, and he would always take you know, the guys that were most beat up or needed to rest. Right. He'd say, take this old goat, take him on the, on the jet right there. <laughs> Put Tim and Tom on there, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Oh, okay. Yeah, they'll stay around all night to be drinking beer all night on the road. Exactly. So, Bruce, so you said you, you took over in 87 as a majority owner, right? or 100% owner right. of the Kings? Yeah. So that, let, let's, uh, can we talk about the big, obviously the biggest deal in, in hockey history and how that happened and what you know your role was in that? Yeah, sure. And, that, and I'm not talking about when you traded Dion for Laidlaw. Oh, okay. Yeah, not that big. The second biggest trade. The other one. What's the other one? I don't remember. Oh, <laughs> that's right. Uh, actually, even before that, just as a, I'm not sure, Tom, you were there or not. But anyway, at the time uh, when I got the team, 100% of it, we had three of the youngest stars in the game. You know, Luke Robitaille, Jimmy Carson, and Steve Duchesne. Yep. So I decided, why don't I have a party honoring them? Especially because Luke won the Calder Trophy that, that year as the Rookie of the Year. So he said, I said, okay, let's do that. And um, so I had it at Spago, which is at that time the only celebrity restaurant in the city. So I invited all these celebrities and so forth. So as we're pulling up, the paparazzi are all over the place, photos of Tom Hanks, Tom Cruise, uh, every star in Hollywood showing up there to, to meet the, you know, the players. 
out comes Luke Romatai, the two of the guys. They ignored him. They didn't know who they were. They <laughs> said, well, who are you? Uh, well, we're being honored, I think. Oh, okay, bye. <laughs> but nobody cared. It was so funny at the time. And then, uh, and then Leo, you know, that's, that's the story that Luke loves to tell about how he was ignored at that time. So anyway, uh, after I bought the team, I thought to myself, you know, it's a great game. Nobody, nobody shows up. What do I do to help that out? Well, Jerry Buss had mentioned to me early on that he had tried to talk to Peter Pockington, the owner of the Edmonton Oilers, about getting, about getting Wayne Gretzky. And I said, kind of got in my head. So when I first owned the team, I started going to the various board meetings. Even when I owned half the team, Jerry Buss was great. He said, you, you, run that, you run that show. I'll take care of the Lakers. You run that show. So he would send him to the Board of Governors meetings. So I would see Peter Pockington. I always say, hey, Peter, how about, how about Gretzky? You know, can I get him? He'd laugh. Yeah, right. Bye-bye. And then I kept bugging him. And one day, I remember he said to me, I said, well, what kind of a trade would you want? Well, he said, let's start with this. I could take your whole team, and you still couldn't have him. Huh. Well, you can have the whole team. How's that? <laughs> Except Laidlaw. Why? You can't trade the big ones, the great ones. Yeah, that's right. So I said, um, all right. One day, out of the blue, he calls me. He said, are you still serious about Gretzky? And I said, Yes. Oh, hold on. I got to ask you now. When he says that to you, what's going on in your head? I said, okay. He said, well, first of all, I want $15 million cash, U.S. That's number one. Wow. Number two is I want some draft picks and I want some uh, other players. And I said, okay, done. Where did I send the money? And he said, uh, okay, so give me information. So I said, okay. Then it went on to a negotiation. It was really as much of anything with um, the general manager at that time of Edmonton, who you probably remember quite well. Yeah. He also became the GM, and now I think of the, the Rangers now, I think. President president now, yeah. President of the team. Yeah. Glenn Sather. Yeah, Glenn Sather. So Glenn called me. He says, let me tell you that crazy fucking owner. I'm not, I'm not doing anything with this. It ain't happening. Bye-bye. Oh. Okay. I didn't know that. Bruce, who was your GM at the time? Rogie. Yeah, and you're just you're just making this deal. This is an order. So so Rogie, so uh, Glenn was going to be negotiating with you. Yeah. Okay. And then I called Peter and I said, well, I guess there's no deal. I mean, Glenn says he says he doesn't own the team. You, you know. I said okay. So uh, so back and forth. Then Glenn got back to me and he said, okay, look, you know, he wants to do this trade. This is the worst thing in the history of the world for us. But okay, fine. He said, uh, I want um, Luke Robitaille. <laughs> I want, uh, you know, in addition to that, he said, I want um, some other players, you know, that, that I'll come up with. I want three first-round draft picks. And uh, I said, okay, all right, except Luke. I said, I can't trade Luke. Oh, you did? Okay. Yeah. And he said, well, there's no deal there. So it took months. We went back and forth and back. And finally, I, and actually, um, Bruce, when did this whole thing start? Was Because the trade happened in the summer of 88. Was this going yeah. on through the whole season? Yeah. yeah through it was going on really seriously i think it began in june actually so not the whole season it was actually just when the season ended it really began and does wait does we know this is going on at the time no okay not at all nobody knew except me and peter Pockington and glenn Sayer. only three oh oh really rogie not anybody knew finally i said look first of all i need to talk to wayne because he doesn't want to trade so i said look uh i gotta talk to wayne no can't talk to Wayne. You know me enough to know that I don't listen a lot to yeah. regulations. Yes, we'll talk about that a bit. Yeah, I, I, I knew Wayne a little bit because when I first got the team, 
<laughs> I would sit down near the ice. He'd come over and slap me with a stick. And I always, you know, hey, I'm going to get you one day and eat it all. Oh. So anyway, he um, he calls me and he said, hey, can uh, you give me some couple of tickets to the Celtic Lakers championship game? And I said, yeah, sure, Wayne. This was back in May or June, something like that. So, uh, I, so I did. And he brought Janet, his future wife. And I sat with him. And I started bugging him about, hey, you want to come to L.A.? This is great. And so uh, once again, the old no, 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 no. Oh, so, so Wayne said no at that time. Yeah, he, he didn't want any part of it. Oh. And then I said, okay, you know, what am I going to do? So Wayne said, they'll never trade me anyway. I wouldn't, and I, I don't want to leave. This is a championship team. I love my guys. I'm not going to move. Okay, Wayne. So I go back to Pockington after that in June. I tell him back. He says, well, he hasn't got the choice. Not his choice. Wow. So just deal with me. I said, okay. So again, back and forth. So finally, 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 I we settled on Jimmy Carson and the three draft picks. Uh, I got in exchange uh, Mike Krzyzewski and, and uh, another another pick from them. And then, uh, which later become Martin Jelena. And Martin Mar- Mar- McSorley too, right? And Martin McSorley. Well, yep. wait a minute on that. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. I thought that's the way they went down. Yeah. Finally, what happened was I said to Wayne, Wayne, it's going to happen, man. And he said, no. So he's in my office. Wayne would come into my office quite a bit. We'd just chat around. So he came to my office and Peter Pocket happened to call. So I put him on. He's, he's still on the Oilers at this point? Yeah. Oh, wow. So that's kind of rare for another player to come into the owner's of the uh, owner's yeah. office of the other team, right? Yeah. I guess Wayne, though. It's Wayne. So, it, but again, that's probably tampering. Okay. Yeah, but that, yeah, right. That's like, that's, that's like, hey, your wife's over. She wants to talk to you. You know, like, it's so weird. So Peter got on the phone and I started talking to him. And I said, uh, so Peter, I, 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 I can do, I'm told to say that I can do Jimmy Carson or I can do Robitaille, start talking like that. And, he, and I said, so you really want to do this deal, right? Peter, I was hoping he would say yes. He says, yeah, it's about time I got rid of that whiny kid up there. No. Oh, no. Was that speakerphone? Yeah. Oh, that sealed the deal right there. So I said, okay, all right, See, talk to you later, bye-bye. So Wayne says, I'm a king, what's next? Oh, <laughs> I did not know that part, that's amazing. Oh, wow. yeah. so, and, uh, I said, okay, and uh, then, then Wayne got involved. He became the guy, my GM, right. telling me, well, I need Marty, Mike Krzyzewski to be helpful as a second center for me, you know, uh, and, and you cannot give up three, draft, three first-round draft picks in a row, so stagging them every other year. Oh, uh, wow. So, he didn't try to get Yari Kari in the deal? He knew there's a range of possibilities that some are not. Yari was not. So, so okay, good. So uh, we end up, and I said to Wayne, "Hey, I see. I think we do this." My other emotional problem was Jimmy Carson because he was a friend and he was like my best center. Also, a great player at the time too. Fifty-five goals as a as an eighteen-year-old American born kid. So I felt bad. So I went to Jimmy and I said, "Jimmy, you're going to get traded to to Edmonton for Gretzky." So the good news is you'll be the household name for a lot of years. Yeah. The other good news is if you were here on the team, you're now my first line center. You're certainly going to be behind Gretzky. So you're not going to get the ice time. You're not going to get the goals or anything else being a second line center. So it'll be good for you. He kind of bowed into it, sort of. Yeah. So I felt like at least I told him what my, yeah. you know, was. He couldn't argue that, you know, getting Gretzky was amazing. So we ended up doing that deal. And all the time... I was nervous as hell that this was going to fall apart somehow. 
Right. Because of the media. Terrified the media when they get a hold of it. When they get a hold of something, so I hadn't told anybody. So I go to Rogi and I tell him I'm going to be arrested. He said, well, why don't you just lie down here for a while? And I'll call him. <laughs> <laughs> and anybody that knows Rogi, Rogi was this really calm, quiet guy too, right? Yeah. And like total yeah. gentleman. Great guy. Yeah. Yeah, he was he was a good golfer. That was what he did. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and he knew that he wasn't a party to any of this, which is unusual for a general manager not to yeah. be a part. So when he finally believed me, we went to tell the the scouts because in the draft we had the problem potentially of what are we going to give up, who we're going to get, how is this going to work? And again, the all the scouts were laughing, like, "Yeah, right, okay, sure, yeah. sir." I told him. I told him then at the time uh, when what was going on. This is early before the before August. I let him know, and um, and so that that finally we ended up doing the trade, as you know, and went from there. I, mean, I remember being back in New York, and I was watching. Back then, there wasn't all these sports stations, and it was just ESPN basically. So I'm watching ESPN in the morning, and they're saying there's a chance Gretzky's going to get traded, and I'm like a lot of people, that's not going to happen, right? Because that stuff didn't happen. Then the no. day goes on. Now I'm, I think I'm having a cocktail too because I'm thinking, yeah, this is, and then it starts looking yeah. like it's going to happen. And I'm thinking, my soul, I'm going to be playing with Wayne Gretzky for, for God's sake. It was incredible. At the end of the day, I was like, uh, like I really felt like a different person, a different player that Wayne was going to be on the team all of a sudden. So it was, it was pretty weird. Like, like, how the heck did he do that? Because I remember we still are like this today. If somebody says something's going to happen, it seems like it's a, just no way it's not going to happen. We go, Gretzky got traded. So yeah. Gretzky can get traded. Anybody can, can happen to anybody. So. And then on top of that, Bruce tripled his salary right off the bat, too, which was very nice for you guys. Well, it was kind of a funny situation because he only had two years left of his contract. And I was paying $15 million all these players. So I said, wait, we have to redo your contract. He said, oh, sir. I said, well, what do you think you're going? And he said, I don't know. Come up with something. So I said to myself, well, how about if I pay you $3 million a year, which is the highest any athlete, Magic, was getting $3 million a year. So I said, okay. And Wayne says to me, no, that's crazy. That's way too much. He said, I'll tell you what, paid me $2 million a year and said $500,000 back for some free agents and 500000 for playoff bonuses and so forth for the players. He said, I need, wow. I, need, I can't do it all myself. I need some players to fucking score goals here. So he said, okay. So I said, well, okay, so one thing I'll change to that. I talked to Walter, his father. I said, Walter, I'll always make Wayne the highest paid player in the league forever. That's the one thing I'll, the only change I'll make. I don't really think Wade knew that at the time or wasn't that aware of it, but we put that in the contract and that was, that was how it, that's how it played out. Um, and subsequent years went on, my buddy Howard Baldwin, who owned the Pittsburgh Penguins, kept jacking up the price of Mary Lemieux. Every year it was, well, uh, now it looks at seven, eight, nine. It's like going up. So, oh, it is what it is. And so we did that all those years. Wow. No, that's awesome uh, that you did that. And, and at that time, uh, we did not have salary disclosure, I think, until 1992. They didn't have it. Now, Bob Goodnow came in to run the Players Association, and he now pushed the salary disclosure through. So that was that was a big thing, holding back salaries, because not everybody knew. Now, some of the top guys knew, and obviously you knew what other players were yep. making. But that was really holding the salaries back for a lot of people. But Yeah. You figured, yeah. yeah. Also, you know, at that time, um, Wayne was making $975,000 a year when I got him. Wow. How much was Dave Taylor making? He was making about... But about two fifty or three hundred, something. Like oh, okay. That. I heard the stories that he was higher than Wayne at one when Wayne was still in Edmonton. Not true. I don't think so. I mean, Dave was making a pretty good amount. I don't think it was that much though. Okay, okay. But that also uh, speaks to Wayne's character too—that he wanted to hold back a million dollars to improve the team and to to give it to the boys. Well, that was Wayne. Uh, that's the one thing that really impressed me about him. Obviously, his skill level is no question on the ice, but he was so aware of himself and the game, the team, 
how he could change the game, how he affected his teammates, all that stuff. He was just uh, like way beyond. I, like I, you know, I think he felt as a young boy that he was going to be in that position. So he trained himself to be like that. I, that's really impressed me a lot. He was always that way. When we yeah. would go on the road, as you know, you know, he would be the first guy to tell me, buy him all dinner. Let's do this. Getting the drinks. I remember one time, well, I, I finally, Wayne, who did not like to fly at all, yep. when, when we have to go to like Winnipeg or someplace like that, where there's no commercial flights to go there without two stops. So I finally decided I'll just buy a jet. So we were actually the first team, any sport, to have a jet. No, oh, no, didn't know that. Wow. Their own jet. Many of them took private jets through various mechanisms, but nobody owned their own plane. So we bought, I bought uh, for the president of Mexico's plane. I've got a name <laughs> drug fence, so I got a cheap pliers. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we made it as nice as I could. And uh, then Wayne said, okay, and he would sit up with the pilots in the beginning to see how this is actually working, you know, because it'll actually fly. Oh, and um, and he and then then I didn't have to worry about which player to take with me. Layla always put his hand up for that. <laughs> yeah, always, always. One of the biggest things that I remember, too, there's a, uh, so many things, but uh, so normally you're in a locker room all your life, you know, growing up as a kid, you know, the, the coaches are in there. As you get to the NHL, there's more media members in the locker room. Well, when Bruce took the game over, all it, it turned into like we were at the Emmys or Oscar Awards or something. Every all the movie stars are in there. You know, the 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 fans wanted to see it. The the, the celebrities wanted to be there. I wanted yeah. to make in thing to do the, the most hip thing to do. So I'd bring, as you know, Tom Hanks, Tom Cruise, President Reagan would come several times. Yeah. Uh, Stallone, the whole bit. In fact, Saturday yeah. I did a skit on me dragging the players into the locker room and oh. and. And somebody played Stallone, somebody played me. You hunt down a Saturday night clip on the... Okay. That's kind of funny. Because when that was when, when Wayne hosted Saturday Night Remember when uh, Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell would come in? Too? They'd be hockey fans. John Candy would always come. Yep. Yep. Uh, Michael J. Uh, Fox was there. But many of them were there before Gretzky. So yep. I was always there. And uh, There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. <laughs> Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card. Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and a broom. A performance-enhancing broom. My name is John Cullen. I'm a comedian, podcaster, and for 20 years, I was a semi-professional curler. And I want to tell you the story about how a single broom almost imploded the 500-year-old sport of curling. We felt like we were bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's the story of a superstar and his fall from grace. Oh, I was being dragged through the mud. It's the story of two brother entrepreneurs with a dream. <laughs> I said, that's great news. It's a story of intrigue. I still don't understand why we want to keep his name secret. The full story has never been told, so I'm going to tell it. Broomgate, how a broom almost killed curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. To listen to Broomgate, search for Broomgate in your favorite podcast app. That's all one word, Broomgate.
But Bruce, before you got Wayne, you remember, I mean, obviously it wasn't what it was. It's, could it, is it as big as you imagined it would be? I mean, you switched to silver and black and then all of a sudden it becomes the place to be in Hollywood. Like, did you imagine that? I mean, I, obviously you wanted that, but was it beyond well, your wildest dreams? I don't think I really dreamed that it was going to be as big as it became. I was, I thought it would be good in LA and I thought it would get, improve our team to maybe win something, um, you know, and add people to the seats that I thought in terms of the, what all the explosion that happened, I had no idea. It's truly not the explosion that happened in expansion and the kind of things that took place as a result, because as you remember, we, I started making certain that we had a, you know, a, a little road show every time we had a, a break in the, in the, you know, in, in between seasons when we had the various promotional games. So and I would take them to like Tampa Bay, Dallas, Phoenix, uh, all these places that now have NHL teams. Yeah. Well, you guys played the Rangers in the parking lot in Vegas. And the Rangers, the parking lot in Vegas, I paid the Rangers $25,000. But it was kind of funny because there you go. I mean, Vegas has a team now probably because of that, because everybody was laughing. Right. And the ice at the time wasn't really ice. It was mush by that time. And there were crickets all over the place. And, and Wade would come to me and said, how are we going to do this? So we got the, you know, we kept getting the best ice guys up there. It was at Caesars Palace outdoors where they had the boxing. We got about 12,000 people in the place and sold out and the tickets were so highly priced that it set a record for any nhl game in history just box office in the history of the nhl you know fast forwarding later on you know the, the league could see that vegas was a viable place to actually have a hockey team you know that it worked now was the team, was the team profitable at that point bruce they were, you know i made a mistake i didn't make it i i couldn't do much about it jury bust owned the forum and there's only so much he could do because he'd already pre-sold so many things oh. and television rights and the radio rights and all this sort of stuff. So if I had forced the issue, you know, if I said, look, I can't do this unless I get this or this or this, I wasn't sure the deal would ever go through. I wasn't certain. But anyway, as a result of that, I wasn't getting a tremendous amount, like all the parking. I didn't know all that, you know. So as a result, I mean, I made the Forum Club the hottest place to go. Oh, yeah. This, oh, yeah. You know, I would get thousands of people requests and this, and that, but I didn't own it. So, it, so Jerry's jacked up the price to get in, except for the hot girls. You always love it. Yeah. But, you know, uh, and the players didn't mind that, by the way. You know, no kidding. No kidding. Them, <laughs> Do me a favor. Come to the forum club after the game. Oh, no. no uh, nobody wants to see you. Nobody wants to talk to you. You don't want to talk to anybody. So, but if you win, come to the forum. Well, they love that. They yeah. That even rescue would come sometimes. So it was kind of. Oh, that was quite a scene. That was unbelievable. Yeah. Oh God. Well, Tom always says how you were such a, a great players owner. He, he even says you would just hand him like a thousand bucks cash and say, "Go get some beers for the boys." Yeah. Which is just yeah. what what you know well, what owners do that. My feeling has always been, you know, that if you take care of your people, that they'll they'll go through a brick wall for you. You know, a funny funny side story, but we're in Vancouver and we're gonna play the game the next day, next night, and. Gretzky and I, and then Kelly really wanted to come along. He Gretzky wanted to go shopping in Versace there. And Kelly's looking around, and he sees this jacket, this leather jacket. And he says, oh, my God, this is so cool. And I said, okay. And uh, so as we're leaving, Wayne got a couple of things. I would go, what? And then um, I said to the owners of the Versace, I said, I want that jacket. And he said, he said okay, it's $25,000. <laughs> I said, okay, no big deal. And so... I buy the jacket. He doesn't know what it costs. And I get him the jacket. He is so thrilled to death. That night, he had like 60, 60 shots on goal, and we won 7 nothing. Believe me, he was going to stop everything no matter what it took. 
Well, that's the thing, Bruce. You know, like as an athlete, you play to win. You want to win. But right. when you, we, we were the owner, like if we had a bad game or didn't, they got hurt and could have played and didn't or whatever it was. When you walk in the locker room after we see Bruce McDowell standing there, all the things he's done for us, you, yeah. you feel like a jerk. Like, why, well, you know, this guy's doing everything for us and we didn't play well enough. And so I, that was it. I mean, we loved it. it was, like you said, you went through a wall for him. Yeah. Well, and you told me, Tom, Tom said when he was renegotiating his contract with Rogie Vashon, the GM, he said, Rogie's like, get out of here. You're crazy. And Tom said, I'll just go talk to Bruce. I felt bad doing that. And I look back. Oh, and it worked. I did it. No, I know it did. That's especially when I was in the agent business after, and I realized, oh man, that poor general manager. Because Rogie was a fantastic guy. I'll never forget. Uh, we had training camp at Hull one year, and Wayne was on the team. So at training camp, first day, you have your meeting in the morning, uh, physicals in the morning. Then you hang out for a while. Then you come back for a meeting. Rogie's going to run the meeting. Uh, so we, we're with Wayne. We all decided we go to a strip joint in the afternoon, and uh, we go into the private room. We put the girls' panties over the camera and the whole bit. And we're doing whatever we want to do, and we're getting hammered. And the guys are all together. The whole team's there. Larry Robinson, Dave Taylor, everybody's having a, having a blast. And we all looked at each other knowing that we should not be doing this because we've got to go back to the meeting. But we looked at Wayne and go, well, Wayne's here, so we're going to do it. And we came back We came back for the meeting after, and we're a bunch of little kids giggling and everything. And poor Rogie's trying to have this serious meeting, like, you know, starting the season off. But it just, it was, it was all, it was, and the thing about it was with Wayne, it was everybody was together. So even though we shouldn't be doing it, we're all together. So it was kind of like, sorry, Rogie, but the guys are all having some fun, so. Can't uh, fetch yeah. us all, right? Yeah. And that was what Wayne would do. I mean, he, what, I, I don't know if you remember this or not, but um, when we had these road trips from Vancouver to Edmonton, Calgary, Winnipeg, so with that Western thing, um, one day Wayne says, I, well, I had the guys at that dinner before that at some place. Oh, at uh, the only steakhouse in Western Canada that anybody ever heard of. They had, so Wayne uh, went to the dinner with them before, like in Vancouver. And they and I got him a I got him bottles of Opus One, which is about four hundred bucks a bottle at that time. Wow! The guy loved it. So I said, like, so I called my my wine guy and I said, I ship cases of Opus One to each of these places, uh, these this restaurant chain that they all go to. So every time we went there, the guys were drinking several thousand dollars of the wine. I don't think we lost a game on that road. <laughs> they may be drunk, but they were happy. Oh, I'll tell you, that's the thing about Wayne, too. And I mean, he could drink his booze, too, and, and perform. Like, that next day, come over for practice games, whatever. He loved having a you know, We've had a lot of kings on the team from that era, and we, we always say how you guys were like rock stars, but you guys really were living like rock yeah. stars, too. Not just on the ice. You were, oh, yeah. like, living the rock star oh, yeah. life. I remember the one All-Star game we had in New York, and that All-Star game, uh, Barry Melrose was the coach, of course, because we had got to the finals in 93. So we go to the All-Star game. Well, Wayne says... Let's, let's bring up whatever guys are. A lot of the a lot of the players lived in L.A. or visit L.A. after the season was over. Uh, so on my plane was, you know, in addition to some Gretzky and Robitaille, Marty had to go anywhere Wayne went. Um, and, you know, and a couple of my players went. And then Brett Hull came, Fedorov came, all kind of guys. Not all for my team would come. We, so I flew them all to New York. We got there. As you know, the first day on a Saturday, I think it was, they have the skills competition. So after that, the guys said, hey, let's go out. Let's go to a club. Wayne said, okay, we can go to this club. It's a huge place. I said, okay, okay. So we take all the players to this club. Wayne and I left after an hour or so. You know, it's just like the crazy noise and crazy crack going on. The next morning, 10 o'clock, Barry Merrill's calls me. Where are the players? <laughs> I said, oh, my God, they must have been over. 
So I get a hold of Wade. I said, Wayne, where's the clears? Well, they uh, probably sleeping it off or something. I'll get him up. Nope, couldn't find him. So what do we do? Wade and I drive over to the that club, and there, there is Brett Hull sleeping next to a, a, a black vest eye, better off in a fish tank. <laughs> hey, guys, the game starts at noon in two hours. Melrose is you got to get out. Okay, okay. So they come out, they're hammered, they don't know where they are. Finally, you're in the thing, and Melrose Row sees what's going on. He says, I'm wiped up. He's okay, Wade. Okay, you got um, Hull on your on your right, and Thunder up here. Well, if you remember that game, it starts out, I think I think we're down five or six, nothing in the first period. Right. Wade would throw him a pass, and they, they, they'd shoot it, you know, to the other net. So, you know, it teaches you a lesson of uh, as, as much fun as it was, you know. And then also later on, or before that, I would take them to all these players of Vegas, including, again, players that didn't play for me. You know, and, and Wayne would say, get them a line of credit. Wow. They have no credit, so I said, it'll, it'll have to be on me. Uh, okay, so I remember getting a, a bunch of guys. I mean, I don't remember who all was there. All the All-Stars at that, that year were in, in Vegas and then later on in Atlantic City, and I got them like 50 grand each to play. Which was a fair amount of money in those days, you know. Yeah. So they're playing. Some won, some lost. Whatever was going on, right? And then at the end of the day, um, it's like, okay, uh, we got to pay that back. To this day, there's a couple of players that never paid it back that I had. Oh, is that right? I don't remember them all, but some never paid. But they loved. It. I would say to Wayne Wendell, "What's your theory?" He said, "Well, why do you think they? Do you think they want to just come to L.A. because of me?" Yes, and somewhat, yes. But guess what? They love L.A. They love what you do for the players, and they and, okay. the, and that and that that gets around the league. So, oh, sure. Yeah, you, so, remember you? Uh, I think you did this every year. You sent us to Hawaii at the end of the year too, ourselves and our yeah. families. All had a few trips to Hawaii. Yeah, wow. I remember just like this was like this. Yeah, every, you did not want to leave L.A. Like you wanted before L.A. was kind of known as, well, can hockey really make it there or not? Sure. Once Bruce and Wayne took over there, it was like that was the place you wanted to be. You wanted to stay in L.A. <laughs> the weather, the way you treated us. Yeah, and you were rock stars. I and mean, L.A. was so cool in the in nineties too. You know. Yeah. Okay, um, so really, one more quick story. I want to get into this yeah. after the game. Uh, so Robbie Fatorik. Uh, yeah. Robbie's oh. a great guy. People know I played with Robbie, great guy and everything. But Rain, Wayne and Robbie just were two different people entirely. Yeah. I, I, I think they both respected each other. So uh, I've told this story many times. Robbie decides he's going to bench Wayne in Detroit. You were not on the road, I don't think, at that time, right? Unfortunately, I was. I went to virtually every road game. Yes. Yeah. And I do remember that was a really screwed up situation because I didn't notice. I'm in the press box i think it was yeah. and all of a sudden bob miller or somebody came to me and said y you notice a wayne's not on the ice i said oh really what happened what's going on he said i don't know i said well i'll speak to wayne afterwards well it turns out because wayne got upset he didn't score an easy goal or something he, was, he already had like five points yep. anyway slammed a stick across the net yeah robbie decided that that was inappropriate and benched him. We're, so I, we're, we're sitting in the locker room. As you know, we had a bunch of old guys, Dave Taylor, yeah. Tony Robinson, right. John Tonelli, myself, Tim Waters. So when we hear that this rumor is going to happen, we're in the locker room between second and third beer. <laughs> we're giggling like those kids. You can't do that, Robbie. You just can't do it. <laughs> wait, I went to Wayne. I said, wait, what happened? He wouldn't talk to me. But finally, I got a hold of him. I said, Wayne. He said, get rid of him. What, what happened? Well, he, this is what he did. I said, oh boy. Okay. And I knew it before that. They didn't get along in style because Robbie wants everything to be equal. You know, do was an idea that every player is equal. At, well, guess what? Not every player is equal. You know, yeah. like it or not, the realities of the, of the of sports 
is you talk, you don't treat some third line quarterback the same way you treat Cobb Brady. It doesn't work like that. Robbie Woodlow. So I knew there was always a problem. When that happened, as you know, Robbie, I went to Rogie and I said, Rogie, unfortunately, I think we have to do something here. And, and, and Robbie was fired because of that. Oh, was that what, what he, not that right at that time that he benched? Yeah. Was it later on? Was it right then that he got fired? Within a couple of days. Oh, I didn't realize that. Well, I thought it was later on in the year, like in the summer or whatever. Wow. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And for me, for a guy like me, I loved Robbie. He was fantastic. But for Wayne, yeah. it's a whole different. Yeah. We, I, I don't think you may not have heard the story, but Wayne, you know, I always had like those three or four minute shifts. But when Wayne did it, he did it because he thought he was helping the team win. He had something on the go. And we had a game in the form and, uh, yeah, we were playing terrible, and Wayne had the three or four minute shift at the end of a period. We come into the locker room, and again, veteran team, so the coach really doesn't have to say anything. We are all like, "Come on, guys, we got to change this, we got to change that." And uh, Jay Miller, remember Jay Miller, great guy too. He stands up, he says, "Well, if we stopped having those three or four minute shifts, it might help." Obviously, pointing the finger at Wayne. Oh, Wayne, yeah. <laughs> Wayne, rare, Wayne rarely lost his temper, but he threw his gloves and stick in front of Jay. He says, "If you can do better, then you go ahead. Here, here's my gloves." And the, the, the whole room went dead silent. <laughs> Shit, you idiot. And Wayne was smart enough. Like, he was pissed for a second. And then he regrouped himself and went over and grabbed the stuff. He's like, come on, let's go. And started laughing about it. But it was, uh, it was yeah, that was, was pretty cool. And pretty look, cool. the, the, the fighter is like Jay Miller, you know, yeah. number 29, by the way. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. And uh, to this day, I, I, I would spoke to him maybe a month ago or so. You know who I'm glad is really doing well now, too, is Luke Robitaille. Like, he's not just a, a figurehead there as a president. He really knows his stuff. Well, Luke, is a, for me, was great because, as you know, when I went to prison, he would come virtually at least twice a month and bring the family to see me all the time. Wayne would come all the time as well. In fact, the last time I was leaving prison was in a place called Milan, Michigan, which is about 30 miles south of Detroit. What the ne- I didn't even know this was happening. The next thing I know, there's um, Rob Blake, and uh, they were playing the Avalanche, I guess, or something was going on. Or he was with, and Luke was with Detroit at that time. Not so. So he and Rob Blake come down there. And now this particular prison was a kind of rough place. It was not like the California when I first went to. This was the one that I was punished for for having people like Wayne sign sticks and so forth for the cards and God knows what, thinking that I was going to get special treatment, which of course I did. But you know. Right. But they were they were always coming. It was crazy. And I remember Rob Blake saying, oh, my God, looking around. He said, well, what did this guy do? Uh, I don't know. You don't want to know. What did he do? I don't want to know. Oh. He said, it was scary. They said, to this day, Rob or Lucas say, it was, it was, we were so scared to death. It was unbelievable. So, was Bruce, then, so you've owned the team in the 93. You go to the finals, almost win. Uh, I owned the team for a few more years. When did it all start to uh, crumble apart there with the, all the charges? Well, what happened was over the last few years, as the other businesses were falling apart, uh, partly because I've focused on the Kings for the most part and they're not paying that much attention. And my people were, you know, not really holding the shock down, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And um, so, but the banks kept keeping us afloat. No, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. We'll, we'll cover it. We'll cover it. Okay, so eventually it came to the point where the financial statements that I that they my people were issuing were false. Did I know it? I kind of knew it. I wasn't that paying that much attention to it all. I thought it'd be all worked out. Everything to me was I I would always fix it at the end of the day. Always get fixed. All of a sudden, in '94, I think April, I'm I get a subpoena to produce documents and so forth. And then the FBI goes and talks to all my employees. They didn't come to me. They went to everybody else. And so okay, and 
finally, I sat down with him and I said, well, this is what happened. The bank said it was okay. In fact, we should do it. In fact, the bankers helped do this and do this. And okay, but I'm still guilty because even though they may have promoted it in, and they're the victims, so to speak, I still did it. So the banks were part of the false documents that were filed. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that, that's why kind of funny. Yeah. So the FBI people they, and the prosecutors put a, an FBI agent who was a forensic accountant named, um, anyway, in, in, uh, on my case. So we told him everything. My people told him everything was going on. He didn't believe a thing. Then about a year later, he comes back and says, oh, my God, the banks were guilty of all this stuff. And so at my sentencing at the time, and I was, I had pled guilty to do 11 years. And at my sentencing, no victims show up. And the victims are all banks. They're basically co-conspirators, if you will. Right. Nobody showed up. The only person that showed up was the same FBI agent who says to the judge, Your Honor, I've gone through everything, and I'll tell you this. The banks, the victims here, were actually very much a part of the whole program here. And I think that, if anything, that he was a victim of that. So the prosecutor was going crazy. How, you know, Bruce must have paid us FBI agent off. Oh, what nuts. And bottom line is, the judge said, look, I, I, I'll, I'm going to reduce your sentence to as low as I can by law, which is I'll cut half and put off. So you ended up doing 70 months. So five and a half years. And I said, okay, that's what happened. Wow. Ooh. So what were you thinking at that time? I mean, you, you build your business up, you get all this money, you buy the king, you get Wayne Gretzky in, you're the toast of the town, and all of a sudden this happens. Is it like almost unbelievable what's going on? Yeah, it's pretty crazy. It's pretty, and yet at the time, by this time I had gone through, you know, a year or more of a lot of pressures. Through the playoffs in 93, all that time, as great as it was, I would also the economic pressures coming down more and more and more. It was it was it was getting kind of crazy. So I ended up, um, in a way, I felt it was it was almost uh, it was, I was almost a relief, best way to put it. Oh, really? But all of a sudden, I went from being responsible for everybody, players, staff, family, all this, to responsible for nobody but myself. Right. And in a way, it, it was sort of relief, strange as it may sound. No, I never I never thought about it that way. Yeah, because you did. You took care of everybody. You took care of me. You took care of my family. You took care of every player and the family with them too. Yeah, you did take on a lot. Well, so ultimately, all when you, when, all, when all of a sudden that's not happening anymore, you you you, you I, I felt a little bit of relief, wow. honestly. So it was kind of strange, and actually afterwards as well, it was incredible to me that everybody in my life remained there and loyal, and, and so I have you know. I remember Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell flew in one day to Lompoc, and Kurt flew himself, a little plane, flew down there to um, see me. And he flew on a Friday, and you can only have visitors on weekends. But the guards, they oh, my God, Kurt Russell, Goldie Hawn. So they take him, they they give him a whole tour of the, of the place. I don't know that they're there. I have no idea that they're there. So they're, they're touring around, they're looking around, and they take him to lunch, and the whole thing it was crazy. So... Afterwards, I get a I get called into the warden's office and said, your friends, Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn showed up on a Friday, and we think you'd have to do with an escape attempt, you know? And so they thought it was that somehow or the other, he had... So, that Kurt, Kurt Russell was going to break you out of prison? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it was kind of silly, but yeah. okay. But actually, the thing was, after the fact, that all these people remained so loyal, would always come to see me in yeah. prison. And then after when I got out, and the fact that Gretzky wouldn't allow his number to be retired until I was out and was there to be with him. Those kind of things meant a lot. And you learn a lot 
Because when you're on top of the game, on top of the world, everybody's kissing your ass, right? Everybody loves you. Everybody needs you. When you're not, it's more. It's kind of interesting to see who stays by you. I remember I called you when you got out of prison. I could tell by your voice that you meant a lot to you that people were uh, sticking with you, right? Yeah, yeah that's cool. Yes, you did. I don't, yeah. uh, and, and every year I would get a, I would get a, a email or card from you for Christmas. <laughs> well, you know what's funny? Because I thought to myself, okay, this guy went to jail. You know, he's a criminal, right? He's a terrible, this terrible right. guy. And I thought, well, no, he's not. You know, he, he, yet again, you admitted what you did when we talked on the phone. You didn't try to blame anybody else. So you said, okay, this is what happened. So, how it's, how did it all work out with your family? Uh, it, it, it's worked out, you know, well, I mean, my wife had divorced me before the prison stuff. Oh, uh, Tom knows all about I, that. I was my, that was the best news I ever had. So, <laughs> and, um, and, uh, so afterwards I, my kids, when I went in, were like eight and 10, right? I'm like, and by the time I got out, you know, they're like in their early teens, but I would go to my son play football. And so I'd go to the football games. I would go to the games. I did things I did. I probably didn't do much. Like, oh, yeah. But I wasn't that. I was too too involved. It was mainly, you know, it was it was good. And now they're great with kids and all that. So family wise, it all worked out great. So, and how was it when you first got out of prison? As far as like going around in L.A. and people knowing who you were, was the reaction good? Like people supported you? No, I I'll tell you what. When I first got out of the prison, the very first call I got was from Tim Laiwiki, who said, "I want you to come see the the new Staples Center we're building or built." I said, "Okay." So he went down and he showed me all over the place. He said, let me tell you something. And I talked to Philly actually to all the team at the time. Still does. And he said, you built this. Yeah. We wouldn't have this without you. Yeah. And therefore, I want you to know that you have anything you want ever at the stable center. Wow. And so since Tim was gone and then Luke, took over, I went to later on to Seattle and so forth. But uh, and Luke has been great. I parked with a player's park under the building. Oh. I, I have any tickets I ever want. So they've been great. How about the rest of the league, like Gary Bettman, Bill Daly, the other owners, have they been there for you as well? Uh, Well, yeah. I mean, I hired Bettman. Yeah. Oh, you, I didn't know that. Personally, I hired him because what happened was when I was chairman of the league, you know, it's funny because here I am, this the youngest owner at that time, and they, they decided that they wanted to modernize things because at that time, you know, it was getting stale. So they saw that what I did, Gretzky, maybe that would help. So they made me chairman of the league. So as chairman of the league, one of my first jobs was to get a commissioner, Henry Clay Ziegler, who was also an old-time guy. So they they, when they put together a, a a search team and hired a search firm, and we got a lot of applicants, some really qualified people, like a guy that would run a Bisco or something, you know? Well, what, do I, what do I do? I go to David Sturr at that time to, the commissioner of the NBA. I said, David, whatever you're making, I'm going to double it. I want you to be, I want you to be the commissioner of the NHL. He looked at me and says, Jesus, that's a pretty good idea. I said, because you can build this this league up. And he said, look, I just can't leave. And you can't take Russ, Russ Raddick. He said, but you could talk to Batman. So, okay. So I go talk to Gary. And I realized real quick, he knew sports. And he knew what the heck he was doing. Marketing at that time, as you probably recall, we're entering a potential strike work stop and all the rest of it and i said you know he's the right guy so i go back to the other four people that were a part of this committee we formed and i told them this is the guy i have gary meet them they realize it's the case yeah he's the guy and so you know we brought we brought gary to the league and he was unanimously elected as the commissioner that time well, i didn't know that well wow. so i and so gary this day it's kind of funny he says i don't understand this 
you get all the credit in the world for getting grusty and no credit for getting me. <laughs> so, so, you know, I know you're pretty humble, but when you look back at your career, what you did for the National Hockey League, and I do say for the National Hockey League, first of all, to get Wayne in L.A. and show that it will work in L.A. and all the southern cities, the, the Gary Bettman story that I did not know, uh, and the difference it made in the players and their families and everything. You can look back, and as much as going to prison, you weren't happy about that, but, man, you can look back with a lot of pride, right? So, I did a lot of good things through all that. Yes. No, I felt, to this day, I feel very good about what I did. I mean, yeah. And the fact that my crimes didn't hurt anybody. Yeah. Right. They were part of a bank deal that they wanted. So, okay. I mean, uh, so I don't feel bad about anything that way. And yeah. I do feel very good about what, what took place. So, yeah. you know, it was great. I think, uh, I think, uh, I did my best, put it this way yeah, to, 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 to make everybody happy. Well, it made a huge difference in my life. I got to tell you, because, uh, you know, when I got traded out to LA, I love New York. It was great, great players and everything, but nobody really cared that much about the game, as you said before. Right. Uh, out in LA, and then all of a sudden, when the trade happened, what August 9th of what nineteen eighty eight it was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, I, I'm sitting there going, "Oh, I'm sitting there going, I'm going to be playing with Wayne Gretzky." Bruce pulled that off. Like I'm sitting there at the start of the day going, "No, Wayne's never getting traded." And all of a sudden, I'm on his team, and I, I just I'll never forget what a difference my life became uh, as a player. Uh, the difference you did for me. So I I got to thank you. Uh, I'm just I, I, it's going to sound kind of corny. I loved you as an owner. I love you now. I'm very proud of you for what you've done. You should be very proud of yourself too. Well, thank you very much, Sam. I appreciate it. Great to have you on the show. Great stories. We'll have you on again another time with some more stories. Bruce, I'm glad you're doing well. So we will have you on again. Thank, thank okay. you very much for having me. Thanks, Bruce. Thank you very much. Take care, guys. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Tom, that was so cool. Like we had Bruce, we had the, we always t- we had a bunch of kings on the show, and you lived the, the rock star years. But that was the maestro of it all, and what yeah. what an amazing story, and and what a cool episode. Yeah, you know, and it was telling the stories. It really brought back the memories for me playing for Bruce McNall and that team. You know, I went there before Bruce. Well, Bruce owned a small piece of the team, but before Wayne got there, and and again, it was great. We had great guys there. We had the purple and gold jerseys. It was a fun place to to live. The weather was great and everything. But when Bruce took over and he got Wayne on the team, they said we were the rock star. Yeah. Uh, yep, uh, and we joked about it on the show. We're sitting there in New York, uh, August 9th, when the trade's happening. And I'm thinking the start of the day when ESPN's announcing it, and they're going, no, it's not happening. This is no way it's happening. And all of a sudden it happened. And really, and we talked about this on the show, it just really changed my life. Yeah, it, absolutely. As, as a player, as a person. Yeah. You know, it's it's that was a day that changed hockey. I remember, always yeah. remember it was my sister's sweet 16 that day. But it was, you could see uh, this man had gone through some, some adversity he went to prison he admitted it but you can see at the end especially in that interview and people will probably hear that it comes through that you have genuine love for this man oh, yeah. you know yeah and it showed through it's almost like you're playing for the yankees and steinbrenner but without the animosity yeah well and you know it, like somebody can say well yeah because you bought you everything you flew you on private jets yes know, that's nice just, yeah that's right the money was great but it was with Bruce. it wasn't just the money you know it was like it was the way he did it you could tell that like he, he wanted to build that real family yep. there someplace that the players wanted to be they worked together to try to win and we talked about the show too where if you ever had a bad game where you feel like you just didn't work hard enough and then he walks in the locker yep. room after you're going, oh, God, what an idiot I am. Yeah, I got I to play for this guy. Yeah. But look, he said it himself. He went to every road game. Yeah. Like he was invested. He loved the team. Yeah, he yeah. loved you guys. Yeah. He did whatever he could for you. And, he, and the story told about Wayne, like wanting to give back a million dollars to yeah. the team. That's just awesome stuff. Man. Yeah. He told some stuff in that show that I did not, did not realize. I don't think other people had heard before, too. So it was pretty cool. You know, we break your, your, your balls a lot, but I mean. What a what a great opportunity in your life to be on that team at that yeah, time, totally, living totally. that. I mean, you that's yeah. that's pretty friggin' awesome. Yeah, we, we were. I remember going on the road. I, I think I, I obviously I probably told the story, but race camp in the lines were in Montreal. You told it. Yeah. Go ahead. 
And uh, it was like Saturday night game, Hockey Night Canada. You know, like everybody wanted to have Wayne Gretzky there, you know, on the yeah. Saturday night games and everything. Scampanello's on the ice and I'm on the bench. He leans over and goes, Tommy, this is unbelievable. <laughs> like he was, this is this linesman that's been in the game for probably 20 years. And he was so fired up to be part of what was well, going on. Well, it's probably like the first yeah. time they played the outdoor games. And I'm sure those refs, Terry Fraser told us, yeah. they were like, this is just the, he said it was the coolest game yeah. he'd ever been yeah. involved in. So yeah. yeah, that must be just a really cool moment. You got to live it. Yeah. And that was, you know, again, it was just an alumni game we played in, but it was from 14, or excuse me, 45,000 people. Well, I mean, the, I don't mean that. I mean, the Gretzky, oh, the you got Gretzky to live stuff. that yep. era oh, yeah. I mean, you know, for a lunkhead from a dairy farm. Uh, oh, uh, and that's exactly how Ontario. you felt. That's exactly how you felt. You know, there's, there's times out there that are real funny times. Like with Tim, we talked about Timmy Waters and I playing together. And, you know, sometimes you know, Wayne would, you know, would be a four and four, or whatever. And especially when Robbie Vittori coached, he'd put Tim and Tom out there. You know? yep. And Wayne was a great guy. And he did, but he wanted somebody more offensive out there, like Steve Deshane or something. So he would look at us a couple of times. And Tim and I would we'd laugh. And Wayne was good about it, but he'd get frustrated. He'd go, oh, like, roll his yeah, eyes. Jesus, you know, look who's out here with me. These guys again. <laughs> but, but you know what? He would do stuff like that, but you knew he was such a good guy. He would either come to you after and say, Listen, you guys know what's yep. going on. Said, yeah, we know Wayne. You want Steve Deshane out there. I don't play me a bit. No, it's awesome. And Bruce McNall, you know, he's the the architect of all that yeah. and the southern expansion, him and Wayne and, yeah. and Gary Bettman, which we learned today. Yeah, I know. I didn't know all that stuff too. Yeah, you know, it is interesting when you look at the footprint that he's made on the on the game. Uh, bringing Wayne to LA, I, would the expansion still have happened? Yeah, it probably would have, but it happened much more quickly once they saw that hockey does work anywhere. Yep. As long as you got the right Absolutely. And you know, we, we talk a lot about mental health on here and about being there for, for your friends and your people. And, you know, he said, Goldie Hawn visited him and Kurt Russell yeah. and Gretzky and Rob Blake, but he even said something simple as you said, you called him when he got out of prison, you sent yeah. him Christmas cards yeah. and that resonated with him yeah. as a human yeah. being. And that's just, that's yeah. looking after each other. You know? I, that's awesome. I had kind of forgot about the Christmas cards. Yeah. Because I remember at first when he got out, he said, you know, I was in the Asian business at that time, I believe. Yeah, I was. And uh, I don't know if you knew that I was in the we, We've heard all, all of this. So, uh, I thought to myself, oh, at first I was like, I gotta be careful here. Do I want to be associated with him? And I thought to myself after, you know what? He was fantastic to me. You know what? Yep. If it hurts me in some other way, that I don't think it will, first of all, and it didn't. Uh, but that's too bad. He was fantastic. I hopefully you wrote something nice and then just stamp it with your rubber stamp signature <laughs> thing that you have. It's probably a, probably a text saying happy or Merry Christmas. That's text all. Text in 19, well, it was 2000, right? Yeah. Yeah, we do. We keep in touch. I've actually reached out to him too. You know, I've got that other business where we put deals together. Um, and he's he's tied in. He was pretty big in the movie business there. Yeah, he we produced Weekend at Bernie's. That's right. Another thing. That's right. Yes. Great man. Oh, yeah. Great, great episode. People are going to yeah, love that one. That was really good. All right, Grasshoppers. Thank you for listening. We had a fantastic show. We'll see you next time. <laughs>